And welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. We continue our live stream coverage uh, here as best we can. Um, we are we have been furiously trying to get uh, our friends and contributors in Gaza um, to join. It is very, very difficult to get through at this point, as you can imagine. Um, but we are going to have um, our regular guest, John Elmer, with us uh, in a little while, as well as um, other uh, Helena Cobbin, who's a, a veteran war reporter as well, to provide some uh, much needed insight and analysis later on in the program. Um, Ali, as always, um, uh, you have some remarks up top and then and then um, we'll we'll get deeper into it. Um, thank you so much, Ali, Asa. I'm Nora Barrows Friedman. We are the Electronic Intifada. Uh, Ali, please take it away. Thanks, Nora. Um, this morning, our dear friend Rifat Al-Arayr in Gaza, who has joined us uh, on this uh, live stream last week, received the horrifying news that his family's home in another part of Gaza was uh, bombed. Uh, with great relief, I was able to briefly contact Rifat and learn that he has not yet been able to reach anyone from his family. I cannot imagine the utter horror, devastation, and grief he, like so many other people in Gaza, are facing. We're thinking of him and praying for his family's safety. Earlier today, I also contacted another friend from Gaza who is in Istanbul, and I asked him about his family. He wrote back, unfortunately, my uncle and his entire family were wiped out. My brother-in-law's family were wiped out. I lost at least 36 persons from my relatives and close friends. I know of no words to say except those that we customarily say, Allah yirham al-shuhada wa yisabbir hibba'ahum. May God have mercy on the martyrs and grant patience to their dear ones. The reality is that no one in Gaza knows from hour to hour let alone from day to day, if they will still be alive. Excuse me. I'm sorry. <sighs> Death can be anywhere and everywhere. Death can be anywhere and everywhere. The morgues are full, the cemeteries are full, and now the people are being buried in mass graves. The UN has said that Gaza is even running out of body bags. I think of the friends and relatives of people from Gaza who are abroad, who do not know if the lack of a text, of a WhatsApp message or a tweet from their loved ones in Gaza is because of the collapse of the electricity and communication systems caused by Israel's attack or because they too have been killed in this Holocaust. Today, Israel's campaign of extermination by air, land and sea in Gaza is in its 10th day, killing Palestinians at a rate of one person every five minutes. Israel is sparing nothing and no one, including hospitals, ambulances, 
doctors and journalists. The number of confirmed dead is now approaching 4,000, including more than 1,000 children. Many more are under the mountains of rubble, beyond rescue, beyond hope. That means that Israel, with its allies in Washington, London, Berlin, and Brussels, has exterminated almost two in every 1,000 Gaza residents and one in every 1,000 Gaza children in just over a week. This is genocide. This is a Holocaust planned and perpetrated openly and with the full support of the United States and European countries. Over the decades, there has been a mountain of books, articles, lectures, seminars, sermons, movies, documentaries, you name it, asking the question, how can evil happen while this world watches? Why did no one stop Hitler's Holocaust? Admonitions to learn the lessons of never again inundate us every day. Well, now we're watching this in real time. In Gaza, those who survived the bombing may well die of dehydration or diseases as drinking water, which Israel has cut off, is rapidly running out, as is food. What water there is cannot be pumped without electricity, forcing people to drink and give their children polluted water. More than one million people have been displaced in a confined territory in which nowhere is safe and there is no shelter. But here it is again. And some of the most powerful people in the world are not merely silent, but are actively assisting the extermination campaign. Obviously, the biggest culprit is the United States, which has given Israel a green light for genocide. Joe Biden is flying bombs to Israel to kill more babies, to bury them in rubble and in mass graves. No less lethal is the campaign of lies that provides the justification for genocide. Biden himself spread the inflammatory lie that Hamas fighters beheaded Jewish babies. He may be the most powerful accomplice in this slaughter, but he is far from the only one. They are countless, but one which caught my attention today is David Lammy, the foreign affairs spokesperson for Britain's Labour Party. He went on national television and actually claimed that Palestinians had raped Jewish babies. This unspeakable lie, this Nazi-like demonization and incitement against Palestinians places the blood of the children of Gaza firmly on the hands of those who spread them. What's most galling is that these soulless people are willing to help murder Palestinian children for nothing more than a better job, a ministerial car, another junket, a few more votes. They must be held accountable. And so I was happy to see that this morning the International Center of Justice for Palestinians issued a notice to the leaders of Britain's Labour Party that it plans to bring prosecutions against them for complicity in war crimes and crimes against humanity. And indeed, in the Genocide Convention, complicity in genocide is a punishable crime. This came after the same legal advocacy group sent similar notices to Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and other government officials. 
While they spread these deadly lies, the truth is coming out, not just about the utter horror that Israel is inflicting on civilians in Gaza, but, but also about what happened before. Late last night, the Electronic Intifada published a bombshell report that I urge you all to read and share as widely as possible. An Israeli woman, Yasmin Parat, who survived the initial Hamas assault on settlements near the Gaza boundary on the 7th of October, says Israeli civilians were undoubtedly killed by their own Israeli security forces. It happened when Israeli forces engaged in fierce gun battles with Palestinian fighters in Kibbutz Be'eri and fired indiscriminately at both the fighters and the Israeli prisoners. And it likely happened elsewhere too. They eliminated everyone, including the hostages, Porat told Israeli radio. There was very, very, very heavy crossfire and even tank shelling from the Israeli side. She talks about the Israelis firing tanks at the kibbutz house where she had been hiding. The woman, a 44-year-old mother of three, said that prior to the Israeli assault, she and other civilians had been held by the Palestinians for several hours and treated humanely. That was, that's her word. This explosive revelation is now being suppressed. Parat's interview has been removed from the website of Israel's state broadcaster, Khan. But the Electronic Intifada has published the recording along with subtitles and a transcript. Please share it as widely as possible. The accomplices in the ongoing extermination campaign built on lies, and uh, there are many of them, include U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who is today back in Israel to continue offering support, not just for a genocidal extermination campaign, but also ethnic cleansing. In recent days, we've seen disturbing reports that Blinken has been touring the region to urge various Arab regimes to support what is, in effect, a final solution for the Palestinian people in Gaza, their expulsion by Israel to Egypt's Sinai Peninsula, where they would begin another horrifying chapter of mass dispossession. We saw, for example, the report in the Egyptian publication Madamas last week, which reads that Egyptian sovereign agencies fear that Egypt's weak position may lead Israel with American support to propose a plan to resettle Palestinians in Sinai, a matter that Egypt has repeatedly rejected over the past two decades, especially if this proposal is linked to incentives, such as writing off a large portion of its debts or any other economic incentives. According to the sources, this is Madamasr uh, writing, there are concerns that the Egyptian administration sees this as a potential reprise of the 1991 Gulf War model when late President Hosni Mubarak agreed to a military intervention exchange for dropping a significant portion of Egypt's debts, especially if Gulf countries join these demands and exert pressure on Egypt. The veteran investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch also wrote this week that his sources are telling him that the United States is trying to convince Egypt to allow the expulsion of a significant part, if not all, of Gaza's 2.3 million people. 
The Americans want them to be relocated to a tent city in the desert funded by Qatar, according to Hirsch. That would then allow Israel to effectively destroy Gaza. Hirsch writes, With the starved-out civilian population forced to leave, the Israeli operational plan calls for the Air Force to destroy the remaining structures in Gaza City and elsewhere in the north. Gaza City will be no more. Israel will then begin dropping American-made 5,000-pound bombs known as bunker busters. Antony Blinken, the American angel of death, has admitted that so far he is having difficulty selling this plan for ethnic cleansing and genocide around the region. On Sunday, Blinken denied supporting the ethnic cleansing plan. The Secretary of State said, quote, I've heard directly from Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas and from virtually every other leader that I've talked to in the region that the idea is a non-starter and so we do not support it. But we should take no reassurance from this. Note what Blinken did not say. He did not say that ethnic cleansing, the forced removal of an indigenous people, is morally wrong, a crime against humanity which violates every notion of law and decency. He merely called it a non-starter because he didn't find enough support for it. Presumably, he will continue to look for that support and keep trying to build it. So the danger is grave. And we should not make the mistake of underestimating the fanaticism and willingness of the genocidal regime in Tel Aviv to take full advantage of what they undoubtedly see as an historical opportunity to complete the ethnic cleansing of 1948. And if they succeed in Gaza with the flashing green light from the West and inaction from the rest, they will turn their sights next to the West Bank and then to the Palestinian population in so-called Israel, the Palestinian territories occupied by the Zionists in 1948. Nor should we take any comfort from President Biden's statement on 60 Minutes last night that it would be, quote, a mistake for Israel to reoccupy Gaza in full. He once again reaffirmed that Israel has his full permission to go as far as it wants. Biden stated, quote, Israel is going after a group of people who have engaged in barbarism that is as consequential as the Holocaust. And so I think Israel has to respond. They have to go after Hamas, he said. Hamas is a bunch of cowards. They're hiding behind the civilians. All of this is a license to kill, a license to continue exterminating Palestinian civilians and particularly Palestinian children. Because if the Palestinians are Hitler, according to President Biden, and if what happened on October the 7th is as consequential as the Holocaust, then what is not permitted? The United States and its allies used atomic weapons against their enemies in World War II. They firebombed entire cities with the uh, full sense of moral superiority because they were fighting the evil of Hitler. What uh, uh, on Saturday, 
we received a voice message by WhatsApp from our dear friend Ahmed Aburtema, the writer and one of the founders of Gaza's Great March of Return, the non-violent mass movement in uh, which in 2018 Israel met with military snipers murdering and maiming thousands of unarmed people rallying for their rights along the Gaza boundary. I'm relieved to say that Ahmed was still able to text me this morning, in fact, just a few minutes ago, although he only gets uh, a few minutes of connectivity a day. But I want to come back to the words Ahmed sent us on Saturday. He's, he wrote, the priority now is to protest. We need very, very, very huge protests in the United States, in Europe, everywhere to say enough, to say stop the genocide. So please do what you can. Go out and join a protest or organize one. Call all your representatives. I know we all struggle with the knowledge and the reality that there is little we can each do individually. But remember that a little is not nothing. And it is what we have to do. And also remember that what has happened is bad enough. What is happening is bad enough. But a ground invasion will be much worse. The glimmer of hope is that it hasn't happened yet. And maybe if we make enough noise, we can still stop it. Thank you. Thanks, Nora. Thank you so much, Ali. Uh, Ali Abunima, our executive director here at the Electronic Intifada, um, also joined by Asa Wynn Stanley, my colleague and, and fellow associate editor. Um, we're going to bring on our good friend, John Elmer. He is a researcher, journalist, uh, spent years reporting from inside the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Um, John, your initial thoughts on um, the humanitarian situation right now inside Gaza, as as we as we said earlier, we we can't um, seem to get a hold of of anybody on the ground right now who can join us um, to talk uh, about the situation from their perspective and and through their eyes. Right now, we are still trying, obviously. Um, and as soon as we can get someone, we'll have them right on this live stream. Um, but from the reports that you're seeing from uh, your experience as a war reporter in Gaza, what is the humanitarian situation like? Have you seen anything like it thus far? No, and I mean, that's what everybody says. Nobody's seen anything like this before. Um, the scale of it already um, is unbelievable. I mean, it's terrifying when we're sending messages to our friends and 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 you're seeing that they're being delivered, uh, but not being responded to because it, it, you know, it can mean the worst. And everybody, you know, like when Ali's phone went off, like, I don't know how we're supposed to turn our phones off. I don't know how we're supposed to. Um, yeah, it, I mean, we see the the situations where a baby will show up in the hospital and they don't know the family because the entire family's been killed. We don't know if our friends' phones are in those piles of rubble and the messages are being delivered as check marks because the phones are in a pile of a 10-story building. 
I mean, it's absolutely horrific. I don't, I, I think we're all almost speechless about it, even after spending years in the Gaza Strip. I, I, I've been on shows, including yours, talking about the siege on Gaza for 20 years. Um, there's been these uh, periodic, episodic, periodic uh, invasions that are brutal. And so when people are saying that this is the worst they've ever seen, we're talking about the most violence inflicted people on the earth trying to tell us something. And it's difficult to know uh, how much they have to tell us before we react to this. this. The humanitarian situation is brutal. The idea that you can evacuate hospitals, um, it, it's brutal. I, I don't even know what else to say. And and not just the hospital situation, but um, we're, we're seeing now dehydration across the Gaza Strip. We're seeing rationing of, of the precious little water that people have left. Uh, our good friend Rifat uh, tweeted uh, earlier today that uh, last, I don't even know what time is anymore, um, but he tweeted that they've started uh, rationing water, giving it to the children first, and then what's ever left, the adults get. And of course, this is like, you know, many households sheltering together in one place. Um, I mean, you can't even, you can't even begin to imagine um, the, the, the horror that people are feeling when they're trying not to let their children die either from above or from dehydration. Um, when Israel is controlling the electricity and the water supply, they literally turned off the water pipes um, and and without without any electricity to pump the water, it's useless if they turn them back on, which is what um, the Israelis said that they did, at least in the southern half of the Gaza Strip yesterday. But that uh, obviously, like that's you can't just turn on water pipes after they've been turned off without also uh, allowing access to electricity to make the water pumps do the thing that they're supposed to do to deliver water to people. So we're seeing. Uh, absolute genocidal tactics being played out and not just water, but also food. There is no in, no out of supplies from any of the crossings. Um, and you, we've seen, uh, and we've seen uh, Nora, the scenes of uh, people lining up just lengthy, lengthy, yeah. lengthy lines of people lining up at bakeries that have no bread and have no flour. They have very little. And this morning, there was a horrifying report that a bakery in Sheikh Radwan district was bombed, uh, or at least the Israelis yeah. bombed a building next to it. And of course, it's all completely indiscriminate. And that dozens of people were killed who are just trying to get some bread. So there's no food. There's no medicine. Israel has continued to shell um, to attack hospitals and ambulances. There was absolutely harrowing footage this morning taken from inside an ambulance that was being shelled and attacked. And uh, as of this morning, um, seven, at least seven more uh, medical workers were killed. And this 
brings i mean there, there's already been dozens it's like if i give you a number it's already out of date yeah. by the time yeah. i give it to you and we're talking about direct attacks on hospitals on uh, medical clinics on um, ambulances and on doctors uh, many senior doctors the head of the uh, medical uh, faculty at the uh, islamic university of gaza was uh, um murdered with his entire family in an airstrike uh, over the uh, on Saturday. And there are lists circulating of all the senior doctors who have been killed, people with years of experience who have been targeted and killed in their homes with their entire families. I mean, it is, it, it is I think words like genocide are often abused or, or sort of lose their value because uh, of overuse. But this is a genocide. This is the targeted and deliberate destruction of a people as a people, the destruction of their entire society, the deliberate targeting and wiping out of multi-generation families, uh, everyone from newborn babies to uh, the seniors, the elders who've lived through uh, many, many such wars in their lives and uh, it's difficult even to, to to comprehend it and to process it uh, and to understand how people can even survive from hour to hour in such a situation and there's still no aid coming in there was reportedly this agreement brokered by the united states as if the united states can broker anything um since the full partners in this, but supposedly to allow aid across the Rafah crossing from Egypt in exchange for Egypt allowing U.S. citizens, hundreds of U.S. citizens who are, are trying to get out of Gaza, out of the country. Um, some countries have sent aid that is now sitting in Egypt, but it's not getting in. And when we're talking about not just food and water that Israel's cut off, but basic medical supplies, medical um, medical consumables, as they call them. When you've got this number of injuries, where Al Shifa Hospital alone is saying that hundreds of injured people are arriving every hour, hundreds of in, uh, of of injured people. For each person, you need gloves, you need bandages, you need anesthetics, you need antiseptics, etc. And none of that is coming into Gaza. What hospital is going to have that amount of supplies to deal with a disaster on this scale? When there's an earthquake, when, when, when there was the earthquake in Turkey in February, it was a, an absolute calamity on a massive scale. Uh, and in Syria too. We saw what happened in Syria where aid wasn't getting in. People die under the rubble because nobody can reach them. Um, at least when there's an earthquake... Countries around the world, they say, we're going to fly aid in. We're going to get there as soon as we can. We're going to send rescue teams. No rescue teams are coming to Gaza. No medical supplies are coming to Gaza. And that's before you consider the issue of which the doctors keep saying. You know, the, the Israel keeps threatening these hospitals and shelling them and saying, you have to evacuate the hospitals in, in the north of Gaza. And the doctors are saying, we can't. It's impossible. There's nowhere to go. But how are you going to transport people? How are you going to transport sick and injured people? There's no fuel. 
there's no vehicles. Israel is bombing ambulances. And what about the chronically ill? People who need insulin, people who need chemotherapy, people who have other ongoing health issues. Those things don't stop. Pregnant women, those things don't stop because of the war. So we're not just talking about the health needs of the, the people who are being injured, but the normal health needs people have. And so the the doctors who are at some of these hospitals, we've seen Dr. Hassan Abusitta, who is the British-Palestinian surgeon, who is still tweeting, who said, we're not leaving. I believe he's at Al-Quds Hospital in the north, if I'm, if I'm correct. He said, we're not leaving. We, we can't leave. We can't. There's no way to leave. But also, we can't leave the people who are, who are behind here, who, are st who still need medical care. I, I just don't know how, how to comprehend uh, or to begin to understand the enormity of what is being done with malice aforethought. This is not because there's, you know, these things don't exist, that there aren't medical supplies in the world or in the region or right there on the border with Gaza. It's because Israel decided and the United States agreed with them and the European Union agrees with them that people in Gaza should be bombed at this rate and that they should and that and that medical aid water food should be withheld from them i mean uh, is it hyperbole to call this auschwitz I, I don't know no i think it's also important to note ali that when we're talking about the infrastructure in the gaza strip it was already devastated so when we're talking about water i think people here think like oh they turned the tap off and so when you go to your tap and you turn it on there's no fresh water and that they're going to just flip a switch and the fresh water is going to come back on that's not how it works in gaza they pump salt water through the taps uh, most of people's water comes from tanks so it's going to have to be trucked in um it, it, the the situation is already critical the the siege of starvation and dehydration has already gone on, according to doctors that we've spoken to, um, that this is already a mission critical situation for vulnerable patients, that we have already reached that day number um, where that's happening. And each, each hour that that goes on, it continues. There's not going to be this moment where they go, okay, now's a humanitarian pause and we just turn on taps and everyone fills up their bathtub with clean water. It's not like that. You can't even wash your dishes in Gaza with the water because it leaves salt all over the dishes. So the, and the hospitals themselves were already short on supplies. They already are under siege um, from the siege before this draconian siege that's happened. So I just wanna make that clear about when we do talk about even uh, a humanitarian pause, um, that, that it's not like a switch that gets flipped, um, that the situation, you know, and you mentioned the bombing of the, of the, uh, of the bakeries. I mean, that, that kind of thing, you know, you just, you listed in something of, of all the atrocities, but the level of destruction for the society when you have no water, no bread, um, yeah, it, it's already at mission critical. It's not something that we're we're just talking about in in vague terms about what might happen. Um, we're getting to those points. That that's the point that we're getting to by the hour. We don't have days to discuss this. Um, you know, Israel and the United States are discussing uh, how to carry out 
um, the occupation of Gaza, how to carry out the ethnic cleansing of Gaza. They're negotiating with themselves. They're not negotiating with uh, a good faith, you know, international actor who's supporting the Palestinian position in all this. In, uh, in a moment, we'll bring on our good friend, Helena Cobbin, longtime uh, veteran war journalist and publisher, essayist. Um, but John, before we go to Helena, I want to ask you about um, the, 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 like the, just the, the mechanisms of a possible ground invasion at this point, when Israel talks about a ground invasion, what will it look like right now as the Northern half of God as everywhere across Gaza, uh, has been flattened to rubble, um, what, what do they mean when they talk about a ground invasion? Well, the, what they've been saying is that the ground invasion is going to entail killing every single member of the armed groups, and they haven't um, sort of tempered those statements yet. So if that's the plan, if liquidating uh, the entire uh, you know, armed movements after you've ethnically cleansed the population is the goal, then what they're setting themselves up for is, you know, like the oldest threat in military, like Sun Tzu warns you not to carry out a siege on a on a, an urban population. They're going to be fighting um, in the most densely populated area of the earth. Um, you know, they're talking about, you're talking about a built up area. So you're talking about tall buildings, um, just the geography alone. Um, makes it one of the hardest fights in the world, independent of the actors taking part, independent of Qassam, independent of the IDF. You're talking about uh, an encircled, enclosed um, area. And if they do push people to Egypt, that's one thing. But if they don't, they're all still trapped inside that area. You're talking about tall buildings that have been felled. So there's piles like many, many mountains of rubble everywhere. And all of those are defensive positions for the Palestinians, for the defensive fighters. It's always much easier to defend a territory, regardless of the characters that you're talking about, um, because they can and, and Qassam can do this in the Gaza Strip. They can make the war not be on just the ground level. They have the ability to use apartment buildings where you can move from window to window, from floor to floor. You can move to the roof. You can move through mouse holes from building to building. Um, the defensive advantage that that is for a dug-in uh, armed group like Qassam that has been preparing pretty much for only this scenario for more or less their entire existence, but definitely for the past 20 years with significant support um, you know, and tra like uh, training outlines and um, from from Hezbollah, who are you know a number of years ahead of Qassam in terms of this preparation. Um, but you're talking about rubble all over the area, which for the Israelis, if they're talking about destroying the territory, what they're doing is they're dropping these buildings down on top of the tunnel network, where all the fighters that they've promised to kill every last one of them. And every Israeli is saying this. It's not like some people are tempering their speech. Everybody's saying that this is a war of annihilation. And if that's true, then you're talking about going into each of the tunnels. Um, you're talking about fighting street to street, 
you know, block by block, soldier by soldier. The soldiers are going to have to go in in armor and they're going to have to walk beside the armor. They're going to have to move uh, at a pace where fighters underneath the ground are moving up all around them. And even if you drop these buildings on top of the tunnels, you might block one of the entrances with the tunnel from the tunnel, but the Israelis don't know where the tunnels are and the Qassam brigades do. So essentially what the Israelis are doing is dropping concrete and rebar buildings, people's lives uh, on top of the tunnels, um, making it even harder to access the tunnels, which is where, of course, all of this fighting is going on literally on top of the prisoners that um, Qassam holds. Um, you know, and that that's just the landscape. That's just the geography of the fight. And then you talk about the players in the fight and what we saw from the Qassam Brigades, uh, you know, a week ago, Saturday, shows that they have the ability to jam and intercept. They have cyber units um, that have the possibility of dropping the Israelis' vaunted network connections that their entire fighting force depends on, which we saw them do one week ago. We're not talking about abstract or uh, theories here. We saw them do it. Um, you know, you're talking about uh, anti-armor divisions that that live there. They know every nook and cranny. Um, they've been preparing for every invasion. And again, you're talking about, you're not talking about Fallujah. You know, people have talked about urban warfare examples like Fallujah or Grozny. Those aren't examples that are relevant in this case, because in both of those places, the, the civilian population was effectively pushed out um, into a hinterland in Fallujah, the desert, you know, in Grozny, into the hills. That doesn't exist in the Gaza Strip. Uh, there's no hinterland. So the fighting is in a contained space that you, that nobody can change the geography of that fight. And then you have the Qassam Brigades who are prepared to fight on all of those levels, to fight in the air with their new drone capacity, which we saw disable the entire Israeli network, um, that could drop armor armaments on top of Israeli tanks that aren't uh, armored properly in that way. They're moving through building after building, which is why when you talk about ethnic cleansing or genocide, that that has to happen. That has to be the precursor to an Israeli permanent invasion of the Gaza Strip, if that's what they're talking about. Um, because it's going to be necessary to drop all those buildings, which is what those intelligence officials were telling Cy Hirsch in his story, is that if they are going to do what they say they're going to do, then you do have to drop all the buildings. Otherwise, the buildings are fighting positions that risk your troops. If you are going to access the tunnels and you're not going to physically one foot over the next, which I believe is the only way to take out the tunnels, literally one foot over the next, somebody has to go into that tunnel. If you're not doing that, then what the people that Cy Hirsch were talking to, the military people were talking to, um, was using bunker buster bombs, bombs that, that penetrate the ground and then explode. And they're built to destroy military bunkers, which is effectively what the Israelis have put on top of the tunnel network built into the sand in the Gaza Strip. By dropping all these buildings on top of the sand, they've created effectively 
in many cases, four and five, six times the thickness of a bunker that needs to be penetrated by a bunker buster. So I don't even think it's possible to do what Seymour Hirsch was talking about um, in that article without killing tens of thousands of people and killing thousands of people in a single strike. A bunker buster bomb dropped on top of a 10-story concrete and rebar building will blast concrete and metal and people's lives, which what uh, what these buildings are, people's lives. It'll blast that over a radius that would kill thousands of people. And the only reason it wouldn't kill Israelis is because they've completely moved their people out of the entire southern uh, entire Gaza area. And that, that's just Qassam and the landscape. Then you have the Israelis. The Israelis are attempting to come in with what? In the uh, 2014 war, it was 75,000 troops. You know, minimum offensive numbers that militaries talk about is three to one. They want to be at least three to one to the defenders. So if you have 40,000 Qassam brigades, you know, tens of thousands of other fighters, how many soldiers are you talking about putting into this area? Where are those soldiers mustering? They're mustering on the border with Gaza within range, as we've seen, of Gaza, of Qassam brigades, mortars, artillery, it's not clear to me how they're even going to muster on the border, let alone move in. And the minute they move in, there's going to be very, very public displays of Israeli casualties, significant Israeli casualties, which even eight years ago in 2014, after weeks of pummeling, when they moved in on their on the ground in Shujaia, the first place they encountered moving in from the east, they got smoked right away. They had they thought their their troop carrier was blown up. Just one instance. In this case, to occupy Gaza, you would have to put dozens, scores, uh, hundreds of troop carriers. It's and the, those troop carriers all contain soldiers who can be captured which is what was happening in 2014, right when they went into Shijaiya, they believed that their soldiers had been captured right away. So you're putting all these soldiers in on the ground, which is just putting them at significant vulnerability to increase the level of destruction that these people, Qassam, who you're saying you're going to destroy every one of them, uh, are subjecting your people. It's not clear to me that, that that's even possible. Um, but if it is, then that's what Seymour Hirsch is talking about. Seymour Hirsch is asking his Israeli sources, like, okay, let's skip over all of the other possibilities. If you're actually saying you're going to go in and kill every single fighter, what does that look like? That looks like bunker busters. That looks like occupation that takes months. You know, you're talking about foot by foot. One foot over the next is the Israeli. Are the Israelis ready to fight one foot over the next face to face with Qassam fighters? Because I'll tell you, that's the thing that the Qassam fighters have been waiting their whole life for. This utter cowardice of the bombing from the sky when you're in the Gaza Strip, the cowardice of it is unspeakable to just have it because a bomb drops out of the sky like lightning. 
and it, death is just a, a, like a lightning bolt. They're not moving in like Janine where people can fight in 2002 and, you know, it, it, they're, they're, it's the most cowardly way of fighting. The aerial bombardment of civilians is, is unbelievable cowardice. So are you going to, after this unbelievable cowardice, become the most courageous army in the world that moves inch by inch and becomes the first army in world history to go down into a tunnel network and fight in a tunnel network? It's a, it, it, the, it's a recipe for uh, just brut brutal massacres, if that's, if that's actually what Israel is talking about doing. That is John Elmer. John, thank you so much uh, for your analysis. We we want to bring on um, Helena Cobbin. Helena is the author of the first ever major study in English of the PLO. She's a longtime supporter of Palestinian rights. She's a book publisher uh, and currently an essayist at globalities.org. Helena, when you listen to um, John's analysis of uh, the humanitarian catastrophe, um, the, 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 the genocidaires planning yet another genocide on top of genocide in the Gaza Strip. Um, when you are uh, hearing from your friends uh, in Gaza, uh, what's going through your mind? Um, how, what, what, are we, what are we learning um, about what's happening now? So first of all, I really want to thank you and Ali um, in particular for, and Asa and John for organizing this uh, amazing live stream series. I mean, I think you're doing a, a wonderful service for a public in this country that is being, has been systematically groomed for many decades now to value Jewish lives over, Jewish Israeli lives over Palestinian lives and to groomed to um, demonize Palestinians and Muslims as we've seen just now in, in Chicago where somebody just randomly, not randomly, but you know, from, from outright hate killed a six-year-old Muslim boy because he was Muslim. Stabbed and, him. Yeah. And stabbed his mother. You know, this is enabled by our president and our political class and our corporate media that have systematically been grooming people for decades to hate Muslims and to, you know, put the interests or as they see them, the interests of Israelis above those of, of Palestinians. So, you know, you, you guys are doing a, a remarkable job. So when I get the news from Gaza, um, it gives me a lot of flashbacks to when I was a war correspondent in, in Beirut in the early years of the uh, Lebanese civil war and, you know, the fighting in high rises and, you know, the holiday in <laughs> positions versus the intercontinental positions in downtown Beirut and, and how, you know, that those kind of three dimensional wars get fought and, and obviously, um, cause terrible, terrible um, losses and suffering. I just want to add to what the description that John gave is that most of those pancaked high-rise multi-story structures actually contain 
the bodies of dead Palestinians. When John talks about them embodying Palestinian lives, they contain dead Palestinians. And, you know, Dr. Basim Naim and others in, in Gaza's health ministry are saying that there's at least a thousand Palestinians are lost, you know, unrecoverable from those pancaked buildings. So it's it's just horror upon horror upon horror. So it gives me flashbacks to when I covered the uh, the fall of the Telazata refugee camp in East Beirut, um, which again was a deliberately um, aggressive and um, illegitimate and horrendous atrocity undertaken by Israel's allies from the Falangist party uh, to the extent that um, when I was with a group of journalists that was taken around Telazata refugee camp the day after it had fallen to the Falangists, Bashir Jamal had a little press conference and said, I am proud of what you're going to see in Telazata. I mean, I had never like had that experience before of a military leader crowing so blatantly about the atrocities because of course what we saw was just you know heartbending it was terrible I mean I I can remember scenes from it until today that was 1976 so 45 47 years ago Okay, so um, yeah, <laughs> I guess that's um, saying too much, maybe. But um, in the present circumstances, oh, I, I just want to go back to 1982. I I wasn't there during the Israeli a assault on on Lebanon in 1982 because I had I had to, and I was able to save my own two children. We were living in Beirut, and it was, you know, epicenter of of um, fighting in eighty one. And I, so I scooped up my children and brought them, first of all, to to the UK, and then here to the United States, where I wrote my book on the PLO. Um, so I wasn't there then, but I was here in in um, first of all Cambridge, Massachusetts, and then here in Washington D.C. during um, the assault on. Lebanon, which was named by the Israelis. I mean, they always have these grotesque names for their assaults. This one was called Operation Peace for Galilee. Um, and it was, it was surreal. It was like traumatic for me because I was here trying to write my book and, you know, look after my children as a single mother um, here in the United States in an atmosphere in which the vast majority of the political and commentating class was 100% pro-Israeli. The only people who, who actually had like voiced some criticisms of what Israel was doing back in the day were liberal Republicans like Mac, Mac Mathias and others. Liberal Republicans, does anybody even remember? Like these are an artifact of history, those guys. Now, uh, oh, and the other thing I want to note about 1982 was that Jane Fonda, whom you might remember as, you know, <laughs> this great anti-war activist who traveled to Hanoi 
to you know protest the U.S. war on Vietnam during the 1982 um, Israeli assault into Lebanon. She was proudly disporting herself on IDF tanks as they bombed Beirut. I mean, the left in this country was so supported. I mean, Jane Fonda, the left, whatever, you know, but the left was so supportive of this Israeli assault on how, the Palestinians. How, how different do you think that is now, Helen? I mean, just like we, we, we always like to tell ourselves, well, we're making progress and, you know, that all our efforts are not in vain. And I, I believe they're not in vain because the, the levels of popular expression and support are there. But how do we explain our complete inability to change anything above the popular level? I mean, just to see the cold-bloodedness with which Biden and Blinken are uh, pursuing, not even, they, they issued uh, instructions to State Department personnel. This, this came out, this was reported not to use terms like ceasefire or restraint or, or they, 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 as we mentioned last time, the uh, White House sp spokesperson called calls for a ceasefire repugnant. And of course, everyone falls in line with that. I mean, there may be a few members of Congress who make statements that are somewhat critical, but how do we explain that lack of uh, our our failure to to make any change at that level. So Ali, you raised some really important and interesting questions. The first thing I'd say is that your efforts have not been in vain. You know, that we have seen that the, the massive demonstrations all around the country of people protesting the genocide in Gaza. So, and that that is real. And then if you look, there was recently a poll that showed that younger Americans, you know, overwhelmingly no not overwhelmingly it's like a an age spectrum thing older americans overwhelmingly support israel in the current struggle and this was i, I think it was taken on october 12th 13th before you know all all the horrendous pictures out of uh, gaza were coming out older americans were supporting israel and younger americans were not supporting israel in fact like you know supporting the Palestinians more than the Israelis. And that's significant, that's important. And that, you know, that kind of generational shift needs to continue. Obviously, it hasn't reached very far into the political class yet. So that's one thing. And, and you know, the, the, we know the reason for that. It's electoral money, you know, it's fundraising, it's all these big APAC linked um, donors. The other thing I think is really important to say is that for the last 30 years, the United States has dominated every single aspect of Arab-Israeli peacemaking, including it has connived with Israel again and again and again to delay getting to the final status talks for Palestine, which has allowed, of course, you know, the, the systematic expansion of the settlements in, in the West Bank, the annexation of Jerusalem. I mean, Washington under Trump recognized the Israeli annexation of Jerusalem and Biden has not rescinded that recognition. So the United States has given Israel a carte blanche 
for the last 30 years in a period when the US exercised hegemony at the global level. That has changed. That has significantly changed. You know, Blinken goes off to all the Arab countries and pleads with them to, you know, express outrage at what Hamas has done. And in every single Arab country that he's visited, they have refused to go along with those one-sided requests and they have called for an urgent peace conference to resolve the Palestine issue on the basis of a two-state solution. Now, I know, Ali, that you and I could discuss a lot about a two-state solution, but the idea that countries around the world, including Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Iran in the Middle East, which are all or will soon be members of the BRICS, are absolutely in line with what is coming out of China and Russia, which is a call for an international conference to resolve the Palestine issue. So this is all challenging, Washington. I mean, a lot is changing at the international level, as well as at the grassroots level here in, in the United States. Helena, uh, um, uh, we want to just pause for a second. We are trying to get um, our uh, a, a, a colleague uh, contributor from Gaza on the line right now. We want to see if we can reach her. Um, Ali, what what do you? Um, yeah, yeah what, what do you I, I, I mean, I, I I do agree with with what Helena is saying. I think particularly the change on the international geopolitical level is probably going to have an impact long before any uh, impact we have on U.S. domestic politics. Uh, the generational shifts within the U.S. that uh, Helena talked about are very real, uh, and we've seen them for years. In fact, at the time of the May 2021 Israeli attack on Gaza, there were majorities supporting Palestinians in poll after poll, which is quite shocking if you're someone who has closely watched these matters over the years in the United States. But I think that uh, the, the international decline of the United States relative to China, Russia, and other rising powers is probably going to change things faster. But the problem is that the United States, the U.S. empire is like a wounded animal, and it can do tremendous, tremendous, tremendous harm and damage as it, as it goes down. And we're seeing that in Palestine. We're seeing that in Ukraine as well. Uh, I believe we have Maha Husseini on the line with us from Gaza. Maha, are you there? Can you hear us? I think we're still working to get yeah. her on the line, and um, but but while we do do that, oh, okay. Here she is, Maha. Are you there? Can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Wonderful, Hi. Maha. Are you are you in a safe place? I don't even know where to uh, where to begin. Um, are, are where are you exactly in Gaza? Well, we have evacuated four days ago to the central Gaza Strip. Uh, to give you context, I live in the south of Gaza City. Uh, we, we received recorded uh, messages from the Israeli occupation 
uh, asking us to go and evacuate to safer, relatively safer areas to stay. And these areas are in the central Gaza Strip and the, in the south of the Gaza Strip. Uh, I'm now in the house, uh, along with about 50 people, actually, and around 60% of them are children. Um, whether the, the place is safe or not, <laughs> it's not safe. There is no place that is safe in Gaza. Actually, uh, I've been here for four days, and every night, every day, I hear explosions everywhere. There is a place that is um, not very far from where I where I am now that was targeted. Um, we hear a naval forces bombing different places across our area that we are seeing at. Um, I cannot say that uh, the place is safe. I live also, uh, or I stay also with uh, employees of international organizations uh, who said that uh, relatives of them were killed. Um, uh, many colleagues of these uh, uh, of these people working at international organizations were also killed. Their homes were demolished. So um, yeah, this is the place we're staying in with limited. Uh, uh, a supply of water, limited supply of uh, electricity, and limited supply of food also. We have a supply of food for the next five days only, and the, the, the water, we get it day by day. We're not sure if they're going to get it tomorrow. And the thing is that the children are always asking for water, but uh, due to the scarcity of the water, we, we only have uh, one step for each child, actually. So... Generation is dire. We do not have internet connection. I would have hoped or loved to be with you here on internet and uh, on Skype, for example, or etc. But um, I only have this line, which is also very weak. Um, of my uh, relatives and friends try to reach out to me at Kanat because the uh, after the Israeli occupation bomb, the infrastructure. At the two main companies of telecommunication here in Gaza, we have been facing many difficulties to each other and uh, making sure each other are uh, is, uh, are okay. So, and the, the worst thing about this is that you live here or you stay here for days or maybe weeks, and you do not know who is still alive out there. You do not know if any of your loved ones are killed or injured or etc. Because you do not have any connection with them. Um, we lost connection with our colleagues at Euromed Monitor, for example, for the past days. Uh, we lost uh, a connection with our offices outside. Um, maybe our offices try to reach out to us every two days to make sure just that we are alive. The, uh, that's the situation we're living in now. It's very dire and the, the, the catastrophe we're living in. We have never lived uh, this amount and this level of catastrophe and this level of widespread bombing of a whole neighborhood and residential buildings. That's the voice of Maha Husseini phoning in from uh, the Gaza Strip. Um, Maha, what is? I, I I don't I don't know the question. Um, Ali, maybe you can step in. My I'm. I'm overwhelmed. Um, Maha, th thank you for joining us. And uh, it's uh, the 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 question I have is, uh, how do you is there is there any sense that um, people in Gaza are moving? The Israelis gave the order to move out of the north, out of Gaza City. 
What's the situation there? Are people moving? What are they expecting? Well, a large number of people living there in the north of Gaza, in Gaza City, uh, have already moved. A lot of people, we're talking about one million people who have moved or who have been displaced from their homes. Large, a large portion of these people now are uh, at Yubunurwa School, and uh, another um, large number also are staying at relatives' homes and uh, friends' homes, etc. Um, many also, let me say, many of them have also returned home. For example, where I stay now, um, in the first two days, we've been, or we were around 70 or 80 people together, but now we're around, um, around 60, let's say, or 50 people, um, because uh, three families or four families have already went back home because they said that there is no place that is safe. We have witnessed already bumping, a lot of bumping around us, even in the area that was deemed safer by the Israeli occupation. So, so there is no need to leave home. We will go home. We will go back home, and uh, whatever, whatever, whatever happens, happens. So, um, there are people who are going back home actually because they have witnessed that uh, even the areas that were. Um, they were asked to go to are already bombed also. So, and we're thinking actually, we're thinking that in the next two days or three days, if this operation, or I'm not sure what this, if this genocide that is being committed against the whole population of the Gaza Strip is not finished, we will go home. And um, if this is the last place we buy in, let's buy a home. So, um, because, because we don't feel even safe here. We were supposed to feel safe in this place after following the instructions, let's say. But even here, uh, there is a very near place that was targeted and there were people who were killed and injured around us. So I'm not sure what is safe here in Gaza, even uh, the, the uh, employees of international organizations, the journalists, the medics, uh, healthcare professionals are all targeted. So this the the, the, uh, the situation, how the situation is actually exacerbating in the last uh, attacks on the Gaza Strip, they were also targeting of medics and journalists, etc. But this time, it is systematic. It is happening every single day. Every one hour, uh, around 14 people are killed in Gaza. Most of them are children. Most, uh, around 65% of those killed are children. And Israel has very sophisticated weapons that can specifically target the areas they want to target if they... Uh, if they claim that there are people or armed uh, fighters in these areas, they can specifically use uh, bombs and, and uh, weapons that target this specific area. But what they are using are concussion bombs, for example. And let me, uh, let me tell you that concussion bombs, um, these are the bombs when you, when, for example, when they bomb an area, uh, the whole Gaza Strip uh, feels the let me say, the shaking underneath their, their, their legs or their foot. We feel shaking after uh, um, Israel, for example, bombs a place in the, next, in the other side of Gaza. Uh, they have also used white phosphorus, which is internationally prohibited weapon, and they have been also uh, using other kinds of weapons that we still did not recognize, but we have recognized that these are unconventional weapons because... Uh, the 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 nature of the injuries and the, and the uh, those killed arriving to the hospitals, we feel that or we have witnessed that the uh, these natures of injuries.
countries are not uh, are not conventional, are not nature, are not, uh, or are not. Um, um, uh, we didn't we didn't get used to to this uh, amount of injuries and uh, this nature of injuries. So uh, yeah, I guess what is really uh, actually more serious is the blackout, the total blackout of the, of the population of Gaza, making this population or besieging this population. Um, uh, pre- preventing uh, the supply of food, water, uh, uh, electricity, and internet, and also bombing them at the same time while also silencing them and making sure they are disconnected, completely disconnected from the world is, is what is more dangerous. And that is, and that is why we are telling people outside outside of Gaza, people uh, around the world, to keep talking about Gaza, to keep talking about what's going on, because this is what Israel wanted. This is what Israel um, uh, uh, was hoping to do, is to kill the, the people of Gaza, to kill the population, uh, while making sure they won't speak or uh, they won't uh, uncover these violent uh, amount of war crimes and crimes against humanity. Maha, some uh, Western leaders are um, supporting Israel, you know, Israeli leaders, uh, suggestion that Palestinians should be able to leave Gaza and go into the Sinai desert. Um, and, and, you know, p- people are like, well, this is very reasonable. Obviously it's a humanitarian corridor is, you know, look, look at um, how humanitarian Israel is, uh, you know, that, that they, that they, they would provide, you know, uh, cities and infrastructure um, for the 2 million Palestinians um, in Gaza, if they only left, um, is this is this how are how are people in Gaza uh, feeling about this suggestion? And what and uh, and especially for you, um, is this something that you would ever entertain? Uh, well, this is something that we are not even thinking of. This is something that is not even in the horizon in our near future. Uh, I don't think that it, it is possible to leave Gaza. We have already been internally displaced. We have agreed to be internally displaced within the areas of Gaza, the, the, the areas of Gaza. But um, but uh, I'm not sure, or I, I'm sure that the people of Gaza won't actually accept another won't actually be twice refugees. We have already witnessed this amount of violence and this these intentions back in 1948 and we already have experience with that so i'm not sure um that was baha husseini uh it's yeah they're having so much um trouble trying to maintain clear connections i'm, I'm really glad we had her for uh the last 10 minutes um and- and we'll we'll try to send her a message yeah. backstage just to make sure she's okay. But she did tell us that it was yeah. very likely that the the line would cut. So we're very uh, glad that uh, that uh, she was able to join us at all. We've had yeah. a very difficult time reaching anyone in Gaza. I have, uh, you know, I'm always uh, breathe a sigh of relief when I, I'm able to get a mere. SMS text message back yeah. from somebody there. So um, so we're happy she could join us. But Ali, maybe um and, and John and Helena too, I you know, what is I mean, this is it's just the open uh admission 
of Israel's, you know, 75-year plan um, to completely expel Palestinians, to bomb them into submission, to get them to leave. Um, this was also Sharon's plan, of course, um, to, to, to push people in Gaza out into the Sinai to never let them back in. Um, what do you make of this latest uh, suggestion, you know, masquerading as a humanitarian uh, mission um, in, in Gaza right now? Well, I think you you summed it up that it's a it's a ethnic cleansing masquerading as a humanitarian mission, and people who are losing a lot of like diplomatic energy trying to um, get a humanitarian pause or a humanitarian corridor or whatever. I think they are completely wrong. What we need is a complete ceasefire. There, which, as which by the way, Helena, I'd like you to comment on this. Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, has refused to call for a ceasefire. What, what do you make of that? You know, three members of the, like three of the five permanent members of, of the United Nations Security Council are former colonial powers or current colonial powers. England, France, and the United States, and they have, you know, always dominated UN decision making. So the, the fact that we have currently a, a diminution of US hegemony globally is counterbalanced by the fact that the UN Charter has kind of embodied this um, but this veto. You're right it's, about it's, all that, but I'm talking about. Yeah, we know the Security Council is paralyzed because of the the U.S. and Britain and France and uh, and what. But I'm talking about the U.N. Secretary General as a person. Antonio Guterres has refused to call for a ceasefire. And yes, we can say, you know, that that uh, all right. Well, he's in the pocket of the Americans. Everything, but. This is a man who's at the end of his career, close to. He's 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 very well paid. He's probably got uh, a good, a very good pension ahead of him. He's probably got good savings. You know, he's not going to to starve if he calls for a ceasefire. What is happening with people? What is happening with people that they can look at the UN Secretary General, who is presumably getting all the most uh, uh, up-to-date reports from the UN personnel on the ground who can see what's happening, who can see Al Jazeera, who can see what's happening. What stops someone like that? What's wrong with their soul that they're not calling for a ceasefire? What's left for Antonio Guterres? I, and of course, I'm not just talking about Antonio Guterres, but we could name a whole number of other people. What's wrong with their soul that they can't look at this. And they've all called for ceasefires in Ukraine, by the way. They all say stop the fighting in Ukraine, stop the violence, but not here. This Is this not complicity in genocide? Is this not saying we want to give Israel time to kill as many Palestinians as possible? I think you're right, Ali. 
I think you're completely right. And it is a result of this, also a result of this decades long process of grooming of everybody in, in you know, Western dominated public life to value Israel's position more than, than the rights of Palestinians. I don't know Gutierrez personally, um, but I'm sure that he's, you know, he's come up through that system and maybe he like Chuck Schumer and all these other like decades old um, US politicians like Joe Biden, for example, you know, they've just come up through this system in, in which Israel is always right. I do think that things are changing considerably, however, in a number of ways that are relevant to the, the current situation. One is that I don't think Netanyahu has a plan at all. I mean, John has has told us, you know, all all the reasons why it, generations of Israeli leaders have said going doing a, a major ground operation in Gaza is a really bad idea. I think Netanyahu was acting overwhelmingly from like absolute fear and humiliation because of the because of the collapse of Israel's security system under his prime ministership. So, you know, he knows that this this whole what from the Israeli security point of view has been a complete debacle that this is going to come back to haunt him forever. Much more than, you know, the the upset of the 1973 war eventually did for Golda Meir that this this is going to be how his career is remembered. So he's desperately trying to cast around and think of something he can do. I personally, I don't believe he's going to launch this ground operation. But, you know, in the meantime, by continuing to rely on the 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 air operations that have been described by Maha, described by John as so damaging, so horrendous, you know, including we could see the bunker busters, which, you know, were given to the, to Israel by the United States with the idea that they could be used against Iran's very deep, you know, uh, claimed nuclear weapons development, whatever, that are deep in the Iranian mountains. That's why the Israelis have bunker buster bombs. And we may see those being used. I, I don't know. It's possible that, that the Israeli military will launch a ground operation, but it's equally possible that they won't. But in the meantime, they are inflicting this horrendous, horrendous suffering on Palestinians. And, and they apparently can continue to do so. So one thing that, that's prevented them, another thing that's prevented them from launching the ground operation is this direct communication from the, from the Iranian foreign minister that if they do so, the hands of the resistance, the Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, are on the trigger. So there's, there's actually a, a multilateral, very complicated system of deterrence and counter-deterrence going on here, because our famed military and its dreadful leader, Lloyd Austin, and its dreadful president, have have threatened Iran, you know, that if Hezbollah should do anything, don't even think about it. You know, so so they are fairly directly threatening Iran that, that there will be American bombings of Iran and Lebanon if Hezbollah does anything. Meantime, Hezbollah is kind of deterring Israel. Hezbollah and, and Iran are deterring Israel from doing a, a ground operation. And a lot of 
people in the international community, I would say the global majority, including capitalists and socialists and communists and everybody, especially the capitalists, they know that this kind of escalation would be like just disastrous for the global economy. So they don't want the escalation. And, and I think Gutierrez fairly, fairly rapidly will shift to a position where he says this is just like we can't carry on like this. But he's probably quite prepared to allow Israel to carry on killing Palestinians at a rate of about 450 Palestinian dead every day for, you know, for another two weeks or so. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, my, my question for you and perhaps for John also is, we have seen Iran take a, a position, of course, they, they, they're leaving some ambiguity about what they might do. They're hinting uh, that, that they would not sit idly by or they would not be an observer to use the term of uh, the uh, the foreign minister, Hussein Amir Abdullahian, uh, yesterday. But um, have, haven't the Israelis talked themselves into a corner? I mean, at, at this point... Yes. <laughs> they have been so explicit. And Joe Biden yesterday on CBS said they have to go in and destroy Hamas, uh, you know, eliminate it. And I think uh, Biden even talked, and this was on 60 Minutes, about, you know, bringing in the Palestinian Authority um, to Gaza, uh, presumably on the, uh, on the backs of Israeli tanks to govern the smoking rubble of, of Gaza on behalf of Israel. But, you know, haven't they talked themselves into such a corner? What would be the ladder Netanyahu could climb down to, to limit this to this, this, albeit utterly horrendous apocalyptic bombing campaign and not take it to a, uh, a ground war? Is, is there any way for Israel to back out of that? I think the way is when it comes home to, to Biden that, you know, his actions have been so very, very destructive of American interests worldwide. You know, that um, interview with Biden that was aired yesterday was actually recorded on Thursday, um, which is interesting that they held it for so long, that they had had such a long turnaround time. But if you think back to last Thursday, that was when, you know, it was kind of peak outrage in terms of like the way the uh, American media were endlessly replaying and re-reporting all the atrocities that Hamas had, as they claimed, that Hamas had committed in the uh, in the Israeli settlements near Gaza. And thank you, by the way, for for posting on your website that very powerful testimony from from uh, Yasmin Parag. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that whole narrative of Hamas. Got, I mean, remember Netanyahu actually said in the immediate aftermath that this was that Hamas were lining people up and and just machine gun, gunning them into mass graves. And there is absolutely no evidence of that whatsoever. Let alone uh, the beheaded Jewish babies, or as the UK Labour Party's uh, candidate the, the for foreign <laughs> secretary suggested raping babies. I'm sorry to even use this language, but this is what this is what people are ha, have been saying. And so, but I mean, 
again, Helena, and, and also this is this is also perhaps if John wants to jump in, but I mean, you would say, okay, this, there's this notion of U.S. interests and what the U.S. elites think is good for them, but it wasn't a good idea for them uh, less than a year after their humiliating defeat in Afghanistan, 20 years of lies, 20 years of bombing weddings and fighting against, uh, you know, uh, simple uh, people with, with the AK-47s and failing even to achieve their goals there. It wasn't in the U.S. interest to rush into a proxy war against Russia and to, to think they could win a land war against Russia. Uh, it wasn't in their interest militarily, strategically, economically, and yet they still did it. And that's Ukraine. Now we're talking about Israel, where they all have this sort of fanatical, absolutely fanatical emotional connection to Israel, uh, which has been uh, drummed into them for decade after decade after decade. Remember, Helena, that Joe Biden said, I mean, he said this repeatedly, but there's a famous video of him from the 1980s saying it, that if Israel didn't exist, we'd have to go out and invent it. I mean, this man is a demented Zionist. Uh, so where can we see these people ever sitting down? Who is there? I mean, I'm certainly not going to praise the old days of, of the American empire, but there were people at a certain point who at least had the sense to say this is not good this is not going to work out for us those people don't seem to exist anymore that it's just all un completely unhinged fanaticism now or am this, i wrong so so you know you're completely right about the unhinged nature of this which i think affects decision making in israel as in this country but i have to tell you that i grew up in england um, during the 1950s, at the time of the collapse of the British Empire. Um, and I can talk a lot about that, but what I want to note is that there were paroxysms of mindless violence in the course of that collapse, um, including, of course, the participating in, in the uh, trilateral aggression against Egypt alongside France and, and Israel in 1956, which didn't make sense at all. But they wanted, you know, they wanted to cling on to Suez or cling on to something in the region. And of course, at that time, it was the United States as the young and upcoming global power that push, helped push them back. So now we have the, the US empire in a decline, who, some of whose dimensions you have very well described, Ali, both, you know, in Afghanistan and in Ukraine and earlier in Iraq and everything else. And it's hard for people who've enjoyed hegemony for, you know, all their career to suddenly realize they don't have it. And so the, I think that's kind of the, the roots of the unhinged nature, which is played out on the bodies of, the, of our friends in Gaza. I mean, it's just unconscionable. So which, are, which is the rising coalition of powers that can help to rein in this paroxysm of violence? I think it has to be China, Russia, the BRICS, and the global majority stepping up to the plate and saying, 
in Palestine as in Ukraine, these Western wars have to stop? Uh, thank you so much, Helena. Um, I wanted to go to John just to get your your thoughts on, uh, yeah, on on regional um, significance of of what's happening right now in Gaza, especially uh, if you can talk about the Northern Front um, and uh, Lebanon, uh, specifically Hezbollah, and um, what you're watching closely there. I mean, Hezbollah's promised for years that the next fight against Israel wasn't going to be happening in Lebanon. It was going to be happening in northern Israel. And Israel has been talking about it for years, that Hezbollah is going to come down and take the Galilee, that the fight is going to happen inside Israel. And we just saw one week ago the fight in the south inside Israel and what that looked like. Uh, the ability for the Israelis to defend the northern border against Hezbollah, who are years ahead of Qassam, all due respect to Qassam, um, and they have access to foreign countries in a way that the Qassam brigades do not. Um, their missile sophistication is on a different scale. They're able to fire missiles at Israel that are devastating, that are destroying critical infrastructure, offshore oil wells, chemical plants, um, nuclear facilities. I mean, I think we have to be serious about this. And, and the fact that uh, Israel believes that they can, f they can muster hundreds of thousands of or troops on the southern border, what do you think is going to happen in the north? The, the back and forth between Hezbollah and the Israelis has been very careful. They're very carefully uh, constructed rules of engagement uh, on the northern border that could fall apart at any moment. And we're looking even just as we're on the air fighting uh, um, in that area. It's just on a completely different scale. There's no way Israel can handle the fight with Hezbollah in the north alone let alone when the primary objective of their operation is to create a, a, a new God. Like the whole thing about that we were talking about Gaza is so crazy. We're talking about turning the worst refugee camp in the world into a, a refugee camp 10 miles further away so that they this can all start all over again. I think that the the fight inside Israel that was shown in the South is is nothing compared to what's going to happen in the north. Um, and I think that the the ability for Hezbollah, for, for, for this conflict, you know, the, the discussions about peace, uh, you want to see discussions for peace, wait till Hezbollah's occupying the Galilee, then you're going to be seeing a lot of people, Antonio Guterres and the like, calling for peace. They're going to immediately sue for peace. We can even remember... 15, 17 years ago in the July war, as soon as the Israelis went in on the ground and got smoked, all of a sudden there was all kinds of peace talks. After months or weeks, I guess it was, uh, uh, a month, of they had the same language. I, I remember here in Canada, uh, the Canadian prime minister saying, no ceasefire, no ceasefire. That was the line in 2006 in the July war until the Merkavas went up and were stacked up on the border um, until the Israelis were fighting inside the buildings in South Lebanon when Hezbollah came up through tunnels inside the buildings that the Israeli soldiers were in. 
they remember that their televisions remember that we remember cnn with the camera on the border watching the israeli troops come back from lebanon looking like they were not going back to lebanon to fight another war and these are the same soldiers that you're going to ask to uh, station themselves along the Gaza border six months from now. Uh, the settlers that you're going to ask to go back into the, the kibbutz in the north and the south. Um, this situation has the ability to really run out of control. And, and it's not... Uh, you, Iran, there's American warships, uh, carrier groups, um, destroyer groups uh, encircling the carrier right off the shore. Hezbollah has anti-ship capabilities. I mean, we saw it in 2006. That was a generation ago. They have the ability to make those American ships and Israeli ships off the coast be a factor. And I just, uh, this is this situation can very quickly run. If you're talking about bringing Iran in, you've got American troops all around Iran floating on their warships all off the coast of Iran. What do you think is going to happen to them? Uh, they are well within Iranian range for any kind of conventional warfare. They're floating right off their coast. They've moved this carrier battle group, apparently, off the coast of, uh, of Israel and, and Lebanon. I don't think we've seen it because I don't think it's going to come anywhere close to the shore. They're sitting in their control rooms on these destroyers watching and calculating every Hezbollah missile, its exact range and speed, how fast it can sink their battleships, how fast they can reply to that before the second round comes in. It's This is a very dangerous thing to be talking about. Um, it has the ability to really spiral out of control for Israel. And I'm talking about for Israel. I'm talking about for Israel. If you want airlifts out of Tel Aviv of um, Israelis with second passports, wait till Hezbollah's occupying the Galilee, wait till the fight is taking place in 30% of Israeli territory, and they're trying with these reserves that they just called up a week ago to hold back uh, Hezbollah special forces, Radwan units that have been fighting for 15 years, real fighting, house to house fighting in Syria not watching from computer screens while their computer network is the most sophisticated one on the world. It, it's a completely different thing. You're talking about Hezbollah units that have actually fought face-to-face, door-to-door, house-to-house, street-to-street. I don't think the Israelis are ready for that. And, and what you guys are saying is true. They, the Israelis are talking themselves into something that they cannot back up and, 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 independent of the diplomacy and the massive humanitarian catastrophe, um, there, there's a real military uh, issue for Israel. They could lose that war straight out, lose the war. And then what happens? Netanyahu's giving his speeches from a bunker. I mean, they did that just today. The, the Knesset's in a bunker right now. I mean... It, 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 Hezbollah has hundreds of thousands of missiles and rockets. So we're talking about, you know, Qassam in the thousands or tens of thousands, presumably in the tens of thousands. It's a completely different scale. Indeed. Um, I think we're going to wrap uh, for this, uh, this live broadcast today. There is so much more to talk about. Obviously um, we are, indebted to all of this crucial, critical analysis. Uh, Helena Cobbin, John Elmer, of course, our um, 
our friend Maha Hosseini. Um, we will, of course, be checking in with her and with all of our contributors and friends and comrades in uh, the Gaza Strip to make sure that everyone's okay. Um, we Thanks. will... Thank you so much. We will be back uh, on Wednesday and again on Friday. We're just going to keep this schedule indefinitely. Um, and and uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I just want to take the opportunity again to say how, on behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, yes. how grateful we are for the support. These are tough days for all of us. We feel it very emotionally. Um, I know I've had I've, we've had so many messages and emails from people saying how much they appreciate these uh, live streams, just also as a way to feel that they're not going through this utter horror alone uh, and having to to just be bombarded by the uh, horrific lies and propaganda we see on mainstream media. And that sense of community is also extremely important for us. So I want to say on behalf of all of us, thank you for the support. It keeps our spirits high. It enables us to continue doing the work we're doing. And, um, and, and just to say, we will, we will continue with our brilliant uh, podcast team. And also, I just want to give a shout out to Tamara Nassar behind the scenes. Uh, that uh, who who makes all this look so wonderful and go smoothly, <laughs> and also to our editors, uh, if you go over to the Electronic Intifada website, you're going to see fantastic art articles. Our colleague Maureen Murphy uh, has been doing every day an incredible uh, written roundup of everything that has that that happens in Gaza. And I'll tell you, it's one of the ways I stay informed. The, the, the reason I'm able to come on here and, or to go on another show and tell you the latest is because of the incredible work that uh, uh, Maureen is doing. And all our editors and writers, Omar, uh, David, Michael, um, and all of our, we're thinking particularly right now of all of our writers in Gaza uh, many of them have continued sending us pieces. I don't know how they're writing under the circumstances. And, you know, they're, they're even sending us articles via WhatsApp. Yeah. They're, they're saying, I had a few minutes of internet and I'm sending you this article. Edit it as you see fit and get it up. Don't even come back to me about edits as we usually do we're always going back and forth with our writers so i won't have electricity for more than five minutes get this out to the world and we are tremendously honored to 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 have that opportunity to support them and serve them in that way in terms of getting their voices and their reality out so just allow me to say to all, all of you thank you and uh, we'll see you next time and i'll i'll hand it back to uh, Nora and Asa. Thank you, Ali. And um, we are eternally grateful for you every single day. You are um, working nearly 24 hours a day these days. And um, yeah, it, it means it means a lot to hear uh, comments and getting emails and texts from people all over the world. Um, and uh, we can only do this uh, with your support. So please head over to electronicintifada.net, um, donate if you can, sign up for our email mailing list we'll, where you will uh, you know, get the latest information, 
just once a day in your inbox, uh, especially um, promoting these live streams. Um, please be safe, everybody. Thank you so much. And um, we'll see you on Wednesday. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye and thanks.